up, guys? Welcome back to Table 40. Matt and Leslie here today. Um, we are joined by Thane Marcus Ringler. And Thane, I was just reading your bio, and so I'm just going to read your self-descriptive bio, which is awesome, which is ultra-competitive, fiercely determined, loyal friend, relationally driven, internally motivated, always an athlete, adrenaline junkie, lover of learning, disciplined by necessity, extroverted and introverted, passionate and inspired, up-and-comer. And so I was telling Leslie, I was like, I'm a few of those things, but that is a lot of cool stuff. And so um, I'm, I'm definitely also adrenaline junkie and lover of learning and an athlete. I feel like I'm an athlete. I mean, I'm just Still done, an athlete. done playing. Yeah. I, love, I love pickleball. And um, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to learn how to golf, which um, Thane is a former pro golfer for three and a half years. Um, the basics are really not that basic. They're, it's a kind of a long list. When I look at your bio here, it's uh, – We'll get into it, but you are very well educated, and you are a golfer and an author and a motivational speaker. So, um, sounds like you're pretty busy. Yes, and obviously, it sounds uh, sexier on paper than it is in reality. <laughs> I think that's the thing. Bios are fun because it makes you sound really cool, but in reality, we're all just humans. So, I'm no different than anyone else, and I can only do so much. And you know, it's fun about just getting married in March is I. I realize much more uh, my own limitations and my own weaknesses that usually until you have a mirror, you don't see as clearly. Um, so I am, uh, I'm growing a lot uh, through my wife, which has been such a blessing. And uh, yeah, it's, and, and the other thing I'll say with that is none of those happen uh, overnight or at the same time, you know, it's kind of like a stepping stones. And, and as you keep stepping forward, you kind of add this piece and that piece. And so over the years, as you guys know, it kind of adds up together um, versus just all happening at once. So it, it's a process for sure. That's really incredible. We were, we were talking about it before we hooked up with you here. And I was like, Matt, I feel like you guys just should be best friends. I was like, there are so many things on there that I would He's describe. I know. Like <laughs> that is true. You are so much younger for sure. But the ultra competitive thing, let's talk about a younger even younger than you are right now, Thane, and growing up in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And so would your mom have said that you were always just ultra competitive? Yeah, she would. I mean, it, it, it started at a young age. I think it was kind of natural. I mean, part of it, I think, is being the youngest child. There's just one older sister I have. But there's something about being the youngest child. You're always kind of behind and trying to catch up, in a sense. So I think that fueled some of it. The other was I had a natural talent. You know, I was already pretty gifted just naturally in sports and athletics. My dad was a really good athlete. My mom was an athlete. So um, I had some of that natural wiring, which already put me, you know, up the top level as a young kid with my peers. Uh, and then I just hated losing. And I think this was more the ego than anything, right, in an unhealthy way. And because I hated losing so much and wanted to win, I would do whatever it took. And, and that even meant, I remember in, I think, first grade, we were getting into playing some cards at school. And I couldn't shuffle very well. So I was like, I want to become the best shuffler. So I literally came home for a week and practiced shuffling cards so I could do the bridge and look really cool. Um, so it was kind of neurotic at times when I look back at it. But I, I always have been very uh, competitive and, and, and at times unhealthy in an unhealthy way. So uh, building off of that, what, what would you say, like, and the difference between a healthy competitiveness and an unhealthy competitiveness that you found and coaching people and talking to people and, and, and being an athlete yourself, 
Um, how, how would you distinguish the difference between being ultra competitive in a positive way and maybe ultra competitive in, in a way that's, that's not effective? Yeah, I think, I think at, at its core, um, and it's taken me a long time to really uh, learn this personally, at its core, it's identity. So if my identity is attached to the results or the outcome, then it will be an unhealthy competitiveness. Because then if I lose, my identity is at stake. And that's going to be, it could lead to like depression, it could lead to an unhealthy relationship with myself, it could lead to, you know, me turning more into a robot and not a human in that sense, and trying to just maximize, optimize everything, which I've done before as well. Um, and it can lead even like anger and frustration, other other negative side effects. So I think uh, at its core, what we have to zone in on as athletes or any competitor is just, is my identity wrapped up in the results of what I'm doing? Because if it is, then it will produce unhealthy uh, results, whatever that may be. Uh, and that's a hard thing for people that pursue sports as a living, like we, you and I did in that sense. And that, you know, when, when you are praised for successes and when you are um, known as a professional athlete, then your identity starts becoming that internally more than we even are conscious of. And that's where a lot of challenges come in when there's an ending point to that identity. And then what next? And then we have to refine a lot of our identity in that. So I think for any competitor and athlete, we just have to know that who we are is different than what we do. Our identity of who we are is not based on what we do or what the results are on the field or off. Um, and that'll help us. That's probably the biggest key to helping competitiveness be healthy versus unhealthy. Yeah, that's good. That's a hard thing to navigate. Um, obviously, Matt played professional sports for a really long time, and and it is that is a tricky, tricky thing to navigate as a as an athlete. It is, especially when you've had as much success as Matt has had. In that sense of like, uh, you, so much of your self worth. I can imagine that so much of your self worth and value can easily shift into these people like me because of this. And so if I stop doing this, then they won't like me anymore. Right. And that's kind of just a subconscious thing that we go through. Um, and, and I think that's true for even non-athletes, people in the business world or, um, or in a performance, um, uh, you know, like drama or theater, anything like that. A lot of times we just, we, we feed off of uh, the praise of others. And, you know, it's funny, I actually was reading this morning um, in John, and Jesus is talking about how uh, he's talking to the crowds and the Pharisees and saying, look, you want to receive glory for one another. And because of that, you can't receive glory from God, from the father that you see in me. And that's, I think that's the core root of what we all face is like, we, we get these mixed up. We, we start wanting to see, receive glory from each other, other humans instead of from God. And that's where we get in trouble. And it, it brings us out of alignment with how we've been created and designed to operate. No doubt. Do you feel like uh, since you have some experience coaching this identity crisis, I would say, and, and particularly with Christians, and, and I love that you mentioned um, that passage of scripture. So I, I guess my question would be like, what, is, what kind of process do you take people through um, in order to kind of reframe the way that they think about themselves and, and like glorifying themselves or taking pride in the things that they've accomplished versus shifting that to glorifying the Lord, like what kind of steps would you take someone through to, to re totally their thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is a personal process. So it's going to be different for everyone yeah. because there are universal parts of this that we can talk about now, but then you have to dive into my story or Matt's story or other people's story to know, like, what is it for you that has really been 
the hardest obstacle to overcome in that. And so when I work with people on things like this, that a lot of it is first like sitting with, okay, who have you been created, equipped and called to be? I love that as a framing question because it kind of brings out this identity piece of like you're, you're created, AKA your natural talents or giftings from early on that you've been given um, equipped life experiences up to this point, how they've shaped you, how they've formed you, uh, what's unique about that, that gives your perspective uniqueness to it. And then called is a lot of that passion, that fire, that motivation that's within you. And that'll frame a picture, a snapshot. And once we get clear about um, at least that person's impression of their identity, and it's always, we're always in a in a uh, rhythm or flow of that. It's never stagnant or um, set in stone. Um, a lot of it is shifting over time as we grow. And so when, when you get clear about that, then you can start saying, okay, here's who you say you are and here's how you're living or operating. And there, where's the disconnect? Because really it's, it's living with integrity. Living with integrity means you're, you're operating as the person you say you are, who you want to be. And we all struggle with living with integrity daily. We, and, and the way we get better at it is by being honest and recognizing it and then examining it to learn from the results. Just like in baseball or in golf, if you um, strike out or if you hit a bad shot, right, you have to examine, okay, what caused what? Why did that happen and what resulted from it? And how can I change my input so I can get a different output? Um, and the same is true when we're working with our lives and how we're living attached and aligned to our identity or how we're not doing that. And, and more times than not, we, we learn what not to do before we learn what to do. And I think in scripture too, I love how Jesus says, like he asks a question a lot, like, what do you want? And so I think that, that Jesus was teaching us in that question, like really look in the mirror and decide what it is that you want. And then I'm going to teach you how to get there. But you have to determine as a person, like, can you identify what you want? Because until you do that, you, your actions and your in your words and living with integrity, like you ex- explained so beautifully, that can never ever happen until we really identify what is it that that we want. And so, um, ooh, I love that. You're so smart. Let's talk about your college. I'm very interested in where you went to college and um, how you gained all this information. <laughs> Well, I went to the master's university. Thank you for those kind words. I, I, some, you know, we can sound more smart than we are. So maybe, maybe that's the case here, but I gained, uh, I went to the master's university, which a lot of people think is a, you got your master's degree and no, I didn't. Or B, is it a golf school? Because you know, the master's golf, oh. master's golf. <laughs> so I get, I got those two a lot. Um, but it's a smaller private Christian school in LA, just North of LA. Um, and my family, uh, the church I grew up in and, uh, what what the kind of the circles we ran in it, it aligned a lot with our faith and what we valued and every student that goes there gets a minor in Bible um, so I honestly with where I was at in my personal journey with God I knew I needed to go to some place like that to kind of preserve my faith as I thought because I didn't want to reconcile with the lack of integrity that I was living with I, I lived with a lack of integrity for about seven years of claiming to be a follower of Jesus and then living kind of however I wanted, you know, justifying my own actions and trying to live a double life. Um, and so that was kind of the bandaid of, for me to, to cover that up and make that, you know, right versus actually reconciling and dealing with that. Um, and that, that ultimately led to, uh, our golf team, my junior year, I was a captain. Uh, we made some decisions and as a captain, I was responsible that broke school rules and got us in trouble during spring break. And, uh, we lost our eligibility to nationals my junior year and senior year because of it. 
Um, and that is my responsibility as a leader to lead well in that. And I failed. Um, and because of that, I, I suffered a lot of consequences for our team, but also personally of, of breaking trust with people I love and care about. Um, and, and that's the hardest thing is when you have to rebuild trust with the people you care about most. Um, and so being exposed was the greatest gift in that I, I learned the pain of not living with integrity and why it's so important if we're going to be a followers of Jesus, but if we're going to also do important work in the world and with our lives. And um, that was a really hard lesson, but one that I'm really grateful for. Um, so those four years, I learned a lot uh, on the course and off. Uh, I loved the school, learned a lot there. Um, and that's kind of the context for why I went there. Well, that's good. So transitioning into golf and into being a professional golfer, was that something that, that happened? Um, I, I know a little bit about pro golf. And, and so you go on to these smaller tours, right, to try to get your tour card. And tell us a little bit about that. I, I guess, was that experience both life-changing from a, from a personal Christian walk standpoint and a, a golf standpoint that, that made you take golf a little more serious or take us through the next step of, of your journey? Yeah. So I knew that my skill and talent had the chance to be successful at that. And um, after getting affirmations throughout college and seeing the trajectory continue that way, I decided between my junior and senior year, I wanted to decide if I was going to give it a shot or not. So I, I, I felt like that was the door God was opening. And so I committed really in between before my senior year that I was going to pursue it. So my senior year, I spent most of the year um, developing a business plan. A lot of guys that try to play professionally um, will go with the country club handshake, which find a rich guy at the country club, give him a handshake, say, hey, sponsor me. And if I make it, I'll double your money. That's kind of how it goes. Um, and that's a great way to do it. But I, I was studying accounting and finance. I was a business degree. So I wanted to be more professional in my route and, and make it more business-like. So I created a business plan my senior year, pitched it to potential investors and sponsors. And God bless me with 11 sponsors um, to launch right after graduating. I didn't want to waste any time and I want to just dive right in. So after graduating, I turned a professional and started playing, like you said, on the mini tours and on Monday qualifier to try and get into that middle tier which is the web, used to be web.com, now it's called the Corn Ferry Tour. And that's kind of the feeder tour for the PGA, kind of like AAA baseball in that sense. Um, and so, uh, you know, it was a really interesting journey for me in the sense that a lot of that time, that, that, um, that inward and outward failure that, that exposed itself end of my junior year, that led to a really, uh, me taking about three or four steps backwards within my mental game on the golf course. And as you guys know, high high competing sports is is largely mental and especially individual sports like golf um it, it revolves 95 percent around your mind and so taking those four or five steps back mentally was really hard because i had to learn relearn how to compete not just um out of this this false identity but out of my true identity with god um and and that was just a really interesting process and not only that it's jumping into a new tier of co competition, a new ocean that I have to learn, get my bearings on, learn how to operate. Um, and so it was the first year was really hard, a lot of failure, not much success at all. Um, and really just feeling like I'm, I just dove into the ocean. I'm trying to learn how to swim. Uh, so that was a really tough year. Um, but I think 
uh, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that early on in any career pursuit, and especially for me, a lot of times we look to other people uh, and what they're doing to try and mimic them. And I think some of that's wise, right? We want to learn the universal principles before we learn the individual. But, but I was holding myself back because I kept looking for this magic blueprint for success of saying, okay, this guy, he manages his game this way, his strategy approaching the course is this way. If, if I just copy that, then I'll be successful. And that, that was a wrong approach because I need to learn what worked best for me, not for other people. Uh, and that took me probably about a year to learn. That's yeah, I, I think that as, I mean, as as a minor league player, you go through a lot of. I, mean, I remember nights where you, I'd literally be struggling watching Sports Center, and the next day I would try the stance of of, of whatever highlight I saw the night before and try yep. to take that into a game. And and really, like you said, you, you don't really until you embrace who you are and figure out what's best for you. Uh, it's really difficult. Like you, you ride the wave of, of the success of that day. Okay. Well, that stance worked for that day. And, and maybe I'm sure it's somewhat different, a little bit different in golf, but for baseball, if, if that stance worked that day, I tried it again the next, if it didn't, it was on to something else. And, and that made for a lot of long nights. And, and I had another story in probate, even in the major leagues, I tried to alter my swing a little bit. And I remember a guy named Kevin Millar, who, who's on a show and had a great career. He came up to me in the outfield. I didn't know him very well. And he said, I'd try to take this, you know, sort of big leg kick that it was kind of the, my, what I did for timing. And he said, what are you doing? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I remember you with this big leg kick. Like, you, you know, and so I, he's like, that's who you are. Like, and so mm. I'm like, oh, man, like, what, what am I doing? You know? And so mm. um, I, I think that that's, that's interesting. Like that, that we all can, can take little bits and pieces from other people that are having success at what we're trying to have, but ultimately You've got to be yourself and find mm -hmm. out what works best for you. Yeah. And it's tough because some of that is helpful, right? Like some of that is true in the sense that it does change per day and you do need to find that little tick that helps you on that day perform your best. And that will shift a little bit, but, but your core of who you are and how you operate, like you said, is so essential. Um, and, and that's true in life too. You know, I think that's what's so cool is sports translate so well to life. And, and what it highlights, I think is the need for us to, to focus in on this idea of self-awareness, this need to really know who we are and understand ourselves in many environments and situations, um, so that we can best operate how we've been designed to operate. And, and I think that's why I, I really believe that's why self-awareness is so crucial in any sport, but also in life. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, self-awareness real quick. And so you have two online classes, and one of them is about self-awareness, correct? Mm -hmm. And then the second one, I wrote it down, it's, it's about ownership, no, ownership and self-awareness, and then never settling is the second class, mm -hmm. right? So yep. let's talk about that a little bit. I don't know if you know this about me, but I've been in online school for five years. I graduate in May, and then wow. hope to pursue a seminary degree, which will also be online. And so I have to ask this question. Do you get grades or like positive feedback with your online classes? Because that is what fuels me, right, Matt? <laughs> and so, yes, you know. The approval fuels me. I know that's not a healthy thing, but it's very important to me. <laughs> we can use incentives. Incentives can be a good thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so let's uh, we, talk about that. I do give feedback and there are some things that are graded, but really it's, it's less about the grades and more about the actions. And so, yeah, these two courses, they stem from the last, the years since golf, you know, I've been doing some uh, development coaching with individuals some speaking and writing. And what my focus over those years is kind of honed in on is 
really developing good self leaders, because I really believe if we can't lead ourselves well, then we can't lead others well. And if we are in leadership positions of others, and we're not leading ourselves well, that will result in a fallout of some sort for yourself and for others. And, and I experienced that with the golf story I shared, you know, it, it's a personal experience for me. So I, I'm big on self leadership. And as I've as I've talked on it and thought through it and worked with people on it, I think these core competencies of discipline and self awareness are the foundation for good self-leadership. Um, and and the, the rally cry, that the phrase that I use now is taking ownership and never settling. Uh, and, and that means taking ownership is like taking ownership of our thoughts, actions, behaviors, because I, if you don't take ownership for it, no one else will, right? On the golf course, if I had a bad shot, I can't blame a referee, a teammate, the weather. It was me. You know, I have to take full ownership. And that's true in life, too. And so self-awareness is what allows us to take ownership because if we're not aware of what we need to take ownership, we won't. And if we're not aware of, we're not taking ownership for, we can't change that. Um, and so these, these courses are really um, designed. They're eight week courses that are designed to help people understand the process, know the tools that can assist them and then put that into practice through the exercises and assignments. And, um, and it's a really practical course. It's, there's some theoretical in there, but the lessons are really short, usually five to 10 minutes, somewhere in there, just to give people an idea of the concepts and then they can put it into practice during their weeks. You know, and I think that would even be a great course for college athletes for certain, but also for parents, because as mm -hmm. you're talking, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about a challenge in parenting I have found is that I, I, I'm like you, Matt and I both believe that it's important to teach your kids self-awareness. It's important, especially because we have two boys that are pursuing athletics pretty seriously. And so teaching them not to build excuses and to just say, Hey man, today was a great day and, and give, give glory to God for that day. Like today mm -hmm. your, your swing looked good. You did some great things. So take responsibility for those good things, but also let's learn how to take responsibility for those bad things. It wasn't your catcher's fault that he couldn't catch the ball when you threw it so hard. Right. And so it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like things uh, like that. Like this is just really, it wasn't the sun's fault that it happened to look, you know, be right there that you missed that fly ball. And so it's just kind of like, it's, as a parent, I think a very popular thing I've seen, Matt, I would love to hear what you think, but we, we battle against that a lot with other parents. Like parents are so quick to make excuses for their kids. And I think it sets up, really bad habits um, as they grow in and mature into being an adult. What do you think? Do you see that as a college coach? Like, Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to say, like, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on, like, I'm coaching college now, and and, uh, and just, like, some of the, the mental part of it, as you talked about, some of these kids don't have a strong mental background. Like, a lot of them are skilled and, and, and have the, the physical ability but I think that it's interesting to to kind of dive into the mental part of it. And I have my experience of things that work for me, just like all of us as athletes have to find things that make it work for you. But yeah, I mean, I think that, that when you talk about like kids have to take accountable accountability is, is important, but what are some of the, I was going to ask you this, what, what are some of the things as, as me coaching 18 to 21 year olds, have you found that that would help them maybe some key terms or some, some talking points that'll help them, you know, with their, with their men, mental game and, and taking accountability for their performance. 
Totally. Yeah. So that speaks to the second part of the, the, the rally cry of never settling. And that's all about developing discipline. Because um, really, our default, I think, as humans is to settle. Our default is to take the path of least resistance. So if we don't make a choice, we're going to choose the easiest path. That's just how it works. And so a lot of it is just saying, hey, I don't want to settle. So I'm going to make a conscious choice not to. And that takes effort and intention. It has to be a reason why I'm going to do this, right? And so for, for athletes like in college, they want to be successful. They want to succeed. They want to win. And they want to do it as a team. And so that's saying, hey, I want to win. And I want our team to do as best as possible. That's why I'm not going to settle. I'm going to work my butt off. And I'm going to put in the effort to develop discipline. Now, what you're talking about, Matt, is really important that it's not about physical discipline as much, especially at college, it starts getting into mental disciplines. Because the physical part is easy, right? You go in, you put in the reps, you sweat, you do all the hard work needed. And that's actually easier because we can see the tangible signs of growth. We can see our body getting strong. We can see our results improving. And that gives us the feedback loop that we need to keep motivating ourselves. Sure. But on the mental side, it's very intangible. You can't necessarily see the fruit of it or the results of it in the moment. And that's what makes it so hard. I mean, as you know, like the higher you get up in performance, the, the smaller the improvements are, the more incremental progress is. And then we have to dig even deeper. So on the mental side, a lot of what I like to, like to think about or some language that could be helpful is, is first off with taking ownership, it's understanding that, look, by creating a culture of blaming the other for the results, you're hurting not only yourself, but the team. And I think understanding that concept of like, when I don't take ownership and I pass off blame, that creates a culture of that to where other people will do that too. So if you mess up and someone blames you, how is that going to make you feel? Not great. And it's probably going to make you want to do the same thing when they mess up. And that's going to hurt your overall performance as a team. So, so by creating a culture of saying, hey, you can recognize mistakes, but say, hey, like, I know that, that you're better than that and you're going to do better next time. And I take ownership for my role in that too. And we're going to get, how can we grow or learn from this? And, and so I think that's an important part of the taking ownership piece. On the developing discipline mentally, I, I think we have to put into place a holistic approach of saying, if we're going to get tougher mentally, uh, not only does that require work in the actual practice, but also in our daily lives. And honestly, the number one tool that I, I worked on and found for developing discipline mentally is something as simple as cold showers. I think cold showers is one of the most effective ways to develop discipline because it's something that most of us do daily and, and no one wants to do. No one really enjoys every single day a cold shower, but it's something that has zero negative physical side effects. It's actually good for your body. And it's something you can practice every day to make you tougher mentally. Um, and then on a practical side within the self-awareness, I think one of the things that was most helpful for me and often could be helpful for anyone in, in college athletics is taking the time to reflect and learn. Uh, and what that means is just maybe sitting with a journal or with your phone and writing down some notes for five minutes after a game or a practice, whatever it may be. As, as a professional golfer, I ended up doing journaling after every practice session at the end of my career, not only tournament rounds, practice rounds, and any rounds I play, but then also after every practice session, because I found that if I wasn't taking the time to sit down, reflect and learn from my session that I just had, I would often relearn the same thing the very next day. And that's just hurting my growth and progress so much. And I finally got sick enough, sick of it enough that I finally just committed to, I'm going to sit with a journal every day after practice, just so I can relearn 
what I just learned. So it is ingrained within me because I think one of the greatest books I've read uh, on learning is Make It Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. And, and they, do, they have a great framework for the process of learning, but really the things that take the most effort create the most learning. And so by sitting down and re, remembering, recalling what I just learned, I'm going to actually learn it deeper and it's going to stick. Yeah, that's really good. Another thing you did that I thought was fascinating is you've written a book about hope. And mm. so as we're approaching Christmas, hope is such a, a, a really a, just a word that has so much depth to it and something that we can really meditate on, particularly this kind of, you know, this time of year. And so talk just a little bit uh, about your book, your online book about hope. Yeah, you know, this year has been a journey for all of us. It's been hard for everyone in different ways. And a lot of times uh, in tough seasons, in hard years, when a lot of things aren't going your way, we can all feel hopeless, um, like there isn't much hope out there. And, And I really believe that hope is always readily available for all of us if we just look for it or take the time to try and find it. Um, You know, like you said, it it is a wonderful time of year because there is so much that we can be hopeful for, um, even in the midst of a lot of suffering and and just challenges we're facing. Uh, But I I think that uh, the point of this book is really to help share four perspectives that that can shift our mindsets to unlock hope, even in dark times. Um, And that's to say that like perspective is the way we look at a scenario. So right now, my perspective is looking against the walls and the computer screen as I'm talking to you. But if I turn around, my perspective will be of the whole rest of the room. um, And it completely changes where I'm at in this place and how I see it, even though nothing else has changed. And and that's a simple explanation of of just a perspective shift and how it can unlock hope. And so I, I think that that helps us understand that hope is often in our hands that we can control uh, if we feel hopeful or not a lot of the time. And, and what's so beautiful about Christmas, is it tells the story of Jesus and how <laughs> there is everlasting hope in him and the way that he lived flipped the world's um, um, success story upside down of saying what, what true leadership it looks like is laying down your life of sacrificing, of being a servant. And that is where, joy, peace, and, and security are found ultimately, which is counterintuitive to how we like to operate. Um, and again, that's just a perspective shift, right? A lot of times. So, Yeah, that's good. And the one thing I heard, I listened to you on a podcast the other day, and I would love to talk about this too. You said that there's a tension between commitment and change. Mm. And, um, and I think in marriage that like you're newly married, but mm-hmm. That's a real true statement in, in marriage. I mean, Matt and I will be married 20 years um, mm, in a couple congrats. days, right? A couple days. Wow. wow. We're almost going to celebrate 20 years. Right? <laughs> but that's so true in relationships mm. is, is the tension between commitment and change. And so talk a little bit about that. That was so uh, that I wrote that down um, when you said it on the podcast with Cole. And, and I just love that. So let's talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, you know, there's two aspects of it. The first is, I think, when I think about um, career-wise or what you're pursuing within your work or even in your life, we want to be committed um, for a long enough time to really see the fruit of it. I remember my college coach coming out of college, he said, if you ask anyone on the PGA Tour what they would be doing if they wouldn't be playing golf, none of them would be able to give you an answer because they're fully committed. They don't have a plan B. And for me as a professional, 
the first year I didn't have a plan B, but I had a plan 8.5, you know, like, well, if this doesn't work, then I could do this, this and this because it's really hard and the chances yeah. for success are small and all of that. Um, but, but really that was limiting my performance and my ability to be unlock my greatest, uh, talent on the golf course because I was giving myself a slight out and allowing doubt to come in. So that's, that's a necessity of full commitment. But with that, we also have to be able to along the way evaluate the results and say, okay, is this working? Is this not working? Is this a path that I still feel called to, or is it a pivot to a new path? Um, and for me, that looked like the first three and a half years and then reevaluating. Um, and, and I think that's a good rhythm throughout our lives of saying, Hey, I need to be fully committed. And then I need to also take space within that time to reevaluate and just honestly, objectively look at it to see if, if a different path is better. And, and the beautiful thing of that is that just because you've gone down this road for so long and been fully committed and it doesn't work out how you wanted to, like with me in golf, it, it doesn't mean it was a failure. It doesn't mean that you have to go all the way to the beginning again. You get to pivot from where you're at and all the experience you've gained into a new path and, and use that for good and it will be used for good. Um, so I think on a career side, that's what I would say, but then on a relationship side, that's a whole nother level, right? Because now you're dealing with two human beings and there's nothing more complex in life than a human being. I, I mean, I, I remember hearing, uh, from an older guy that I really respect, I think his name is Jamie Winship. And he said, you know, I don't give marriage advice because uh, I'm still, my wife's still a mystery to me. I'm still learning every day, you know, and I love that. I'm like, gosh, I want to say that because, you know, I hope to never not view my wife as a mystery uh, because she is an infinitely complex human being. Um, and I know we're only nine months compared to 20 years. So I, obviously I'm very n young to this. I don't even want to have any like credibility here, but um I, I just love that approach of like, man, I, I don't want to put uh, a human being into a box, especially my wife. Um, and so I want to keep learning her and growing with her. And there is this commitment that holds you together. But then there's also this, uh, this, like you said, this tension of the space that you hold for each other to change and grow into who we've been called to be. I'm, we're learning. I'm very young to learning that. It's a dance. I, I would love to hear from you guys on that because it is such a, uh, a dance. There's no, there's no system for it. It's kind of a intuitive uh, process, I guess, but I'd love to hear what you think to that. Yeah. I, I even think as you were saying that in that podcast and, and just listening to your thoughts right now, I mean, with our lifestyle in particular, I mean, I was always committed to the commitment of marriage all in, but the change that went on in our, in our life, I mean, we've moved 23 times. And so wow. I was thinking along the lines as you were speaking, like even as a pro athlete wife, I mean, logistic changes that go on um, can be challenging at times, but it was part of Matt's, Matt's development, in his career, the things that he wanted to achieve in his career. And um, so you, like you said, it is a dance and, and you do, um, I'm so committed to him and, and his, his career and the things that he was trying to accomplish as a pro athlete that, that changing was just part of it, you know? Um, but, I, and I also, obviously you nailed it. You're right. Um, as far as becoming different, you're not a different person. How would you describe it? It's just like you mature well, together. And I would say there's, grow. there's, when, when you said that, you know, I think there are some pillars like of good marital advice, right? So mm -hmm. like the, the selfish, like you've grown up being 
all about, you know, you're just looking out for from primarily for yourself. And now all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're looking out for someone else. And so I think once you, there, there are some things, the selfishness thing I, I think is important. Supporting your spouse and whatever their passions are is, is extremely important. And, and kind of just always reading them and what they mm -hmm. need and, and how their day's going and maybe some, you can fill in the gaps. Like, I think those are things that are, that are ways to make a good marriage. Now, mm -hmm. a lot of the other stuff is, is always in, in, in change and, and, and can, can be different. And you go through periods of life and, and stages of, of your life where, where different things are more important to you or less important to you. But I do think there's some, some, uh, some pillars to, to marriage and, and even, in, you know, they're all scriptural based. So it's not like I made this up, you know, it's, it's from the Bible, but um, when we talk to couples about marriage, like there's, there's some things like some, some ideas and some concepts that will, will help mm -hmm. you know your spouse and, and to be part of that ever changing uh, person, complex person you're married to. So um, that's how, that's how I would answer that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't, again, like I don't have 20 years. I mean, there's people that have been married long, much longer than us, but in 20 years of, you know, we found that, that when you grow, um, that that's those are some effective ways of making a living situation um is more harm yeah more thrive yeah because yeah. i mean we i went back to school in 2015 i felt called to ministry and i i was i was like man i feel i don't feel equipped to do ministry well i don't know enough about it i'm borrowing other people's things right and so someone wanted to do a bible study i'm like yeah come on over we'll throw a beth moore video in and we'll learn from her or you know and um and but then there was something like just being cultivated in my soul where I was like, I want to go and learn this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I go to Matt and, and I'm like, Hey, I feel called to ministry. Well, I'm obviously I'm 40, I'll be 42 years old. Um, soon. Gosh, that's hard to believe, but it's just like, even at my age, like I'm still in college and mm -hmm. to have his support in that. And for him not to say, Leslie, good grief. I've provided for you finding or, or for us financially. Like you don't have to work. You don't have to, spend all these hours in school. I mean, he's just, he's just allowed me to do mm -hmm. it. And the sacrifice our family has had to make in order for me to make the A's and to do, because <laughs> mm -hmm. you can easily yes. make bad grades in school. But yeah. um, I really, I really spend a lot of time mm -hmm. on that because like that's grown into um, a passion of mine that, that I, I really desire to, to do ministry well and to be um, like we've talked about in this conversation, just to be, equipped to be able to clearly um, convey the gospel versus mm -hmm. borrowing truths from great teachers, which is okay too, yeah. but that's not what I felt called to do. So in a marriage, it was really neat to get that support and then see it in action, like how sometimes he has to help with the kids and make dinner or be patient with me when I'm upset about whatever it may be. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I love I love that you guys share that. I mean, it's sweet to hear. It really is. And and uh, I agree with both of you that we need to we need to learn from the people that have 20 years. You guys need to learn from people that have 40 years, you know, and <laughs> and everywhere in between. And and um, because we can't do it on our own. And it is um, it's an imperfect process. Like we're we need as many tools as we can uh, to help us in the, one of the greatest challenges and greatest joys. And it goes, that makes perfect sense, right? The things that are most challenging give the most joy. And that is so true of marriage um, and bringing two humans together in such a sweet union with God. And 
Uh, and I think just from a concept standpoint, as you guys were talking, the thing that made me think of is that, you know, life is change in the sense that if something's not changing, it's dead. It's, it's not a part of the living. And so as living beings, we're constantly in change. Like that is the nature of life. You're either growing or decaying and somewhere in between. And so commitment is like that anchor that holds you in the midst of the change. And I think that's a lot of what at least early on, it seems like that's what marriage is kind of exemplifying is that now there's two humans going through all this change together and sharing in all of it. And by holding on to each other and to God, you have this commitment and this foundation that keeps you and holds you as an anchor in the midst of all the storms that are always going to be coming. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Oh yeah. True. Now, I would think that that's, and, and we go back to even sports when you talk about that. Like if, you, if your anchor is, is in God and, and, and in, the right things that there's going to be failure and there's going to things. But if you bring it back to that, um, you know, I just think that that's, that's life in general. That's good. Mm. That's good. All right. Thane, here's the last question I've been listening. So this is a confession. Also, I never really listened to podcasts before we started doing one. Um, just anyway, it's kind of a long story, but I just never did. And then, but now I've been listening to them and apparently you're supposed to ask the question, okay, my podcast is table 40. So anyway, and then you're supposed to ask a question around the name of your podcast. So here's my question for you. So are you ready? We didn't talk about this, but I have a question for you. So our podcast is called table 40 and what would be your favorite meal at the dinner table? Mm. And so that's question and who would number be there? one. And who would be there? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> and who would be there? Look at that. Yes. That tag team. Wow. Yes. On the spot. That is impressive. Yes. That's actually a really good question. I, I love how you guys came together for that because it, it tells a little bit about like um, the person's preferences and taste. And then it also tells them about people that matter to them. Yeah. Uh, what a beautiful question, you guys. There it is. That's going to be the question from here on out. Matt, great job. Uh. Teamwork. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. We should have talked about this. We should have. <laughs> I love this. Okay. Um, gosh, well, I'm torn, but I would say. On a cheat um, day, I could, I realized that you're, I, I looked at your deal. You probably eat really healthy. So this is a cheat day. So this is, this can be anything. Good. Good. Yes. Um, well, I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is I love my mom's lasagna. So it'd be my mom's lasagna with some great garlic bread. Um, who would be around the table? Uh, it would be my family uh, and my wife's family because now there's two families I get to be a part of. And, you know, I, this year has been a really hard year for family. Um, I actually just lost my grandma and grandpa, which was good and sad at the same time. They're ready to go and be with God. But um, it's just really made me appreciate the legacy of family and how that's passed on. It's so beautiful to see the legacy my grandparents lived and um, how that's transition through the generations to my parents and now to me and and it you know we're so trained to think in the short term we're so trained to think in like what how can I turn this into a overnight success or get short-term gratification from x y and z and when you look at generational legacies our lives are building into the the generations to come and it was really powerful uh, for me to remember and see again. So I would love uh, to have it be a really meaningful time with my family. That's good. Okay, but you have to invite somebody you don't know. One person. Ooh, okay. Know. We are just really, well, this is yeah, great. Yeah, no, this is good. I think that that's going to be the answer that we get yeah. a lot because we invite 
like people that are cool and they they like their families but you have to invite yeah. one person you don't know yes i like that one the person i would invite is bill gates i i'm really inspired by what bill gates is doing and there's other philanthropists like him and in, in greater or lesser degrees there's a guy named john arnold i found about recently that i also am really impressed by who's really dedicating their lives to solving some of the world's toughest problems so i think i would love to have him around the table and just ask as many questions as possible and take furious notes. So I probably wouldn't do much eating. Um, but it'd just be fascinating to dive into his mind um, and learn more and more about these incredibly difficult problems that he's trying to solve. No doubt. That's awesome. All right, Thane, how can everyone find your things? Yeah, thanemarcus.com is kind of my headquarters for all that I do. So blog posts, uh, speaking right uh podcasts the courses are on there books etc so head over there um the up and comer show is a podcast i do so people could check that out um and yeah i would love to hear from anyone that's interested awesome, awesome. this has been great yeah thank you thanks guys really it's been a lot of fun yeah i i learned uh, i learned some good stuff from you guys so i'm excited to, to apply that in my marriage and excited about your new question i think it's i think it's a winner yeah <laughs> that's fun. i know you're Thank you for listening to Table 40 with Matt and Leslie Holiday, part of the Sports Spectrum Podcast Network. For more stories on sports intersecting with faith, check out sportsspectrum.com.